I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the Summit for Democracy, which will take place in Washington on March 29th and 30th, we have with us Marty Flax, the director of the CSIS Human Rights Initiative. Marty, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be back. So, Marty, like I was saying, next week, March 29th, the United States will co-host the second Summit for Democracy with the governments of Costa Rica, the Netherlands, Republic of Korea, and Republic of Zambia. What is this summit exactly? Can you give us a little context behind the decision to host a summit for democracy? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is helpful to take a step back and talk a little bit about how we got here and got to a second summit for democracy. So the original idea for a summit, a convening of democratic countries was something that came out of the Biden campaign in 2020. It was something that he talked about in a piece that he wrote of the need to bring together like-minded countries to talk about the challenges that democracy is facing, both from within and from without. And amidst what has been sort of a a multi-decade trend of democratic backsliding around the world. So when they came into office, the Biden administration wanted to convene a group of leaders. COVID made it impossible for them to do that in person. So in December of 2021, they got together over 100 heads of state in a virtual summit to talk about the state of democracy and to make some commitments around how they would take action to support democratic principles in their own countries and in their foreign policies. And because it was a virtual summit, the original idea was we'll do this again in a year and we'll take stock of what we've accomplished over the last year, ideally in person, um, to kind of hold ourselves accountable to all the things we said we were going to do. Now, of course, they're not convening in person. The logistics of trying to gather more than 100 heads of state in one place is just you know, too much to wrap their heads around. So the actual head of state summit is going to be virtual again. And of course, in the last year, the situation globally, the context that they're meeting in has changed dramatically, and most importantly, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So the conversation about democracy has taken on a whole new meaning and importance since the first convening in December of 2021. Well, let's talk about that first convening. What were the big takeaways from that first summit for democracy in December 2021? So I think the big question going into the summit was, does the U.S. still have credibility and convening power to talk about democracy and human rights coming out of four years of an America first foreign policy, uh, deprioritization of human rights and foreign policy, and then the challenges that we faced in our elections and on January 6th. Um, I think there was some question about whether the U.S. was the right convener of this group. And if they invited, would anybody show up? And, you know, there was some there was some grumbling. There was some concern expressed about, um, you know, hypocrisy. There was certainly some concern about the who was invited and who wasn't invited uh, and some legitimate concerns on that front. But in the end, yes, the answer is yes. People showed up. One hundred and one heads of state came and participated. And I think it sent a signal that there's still demand for U.S. leadership on this issue. And I think what made that possible was a fairly introspective approach by the Biden administration to go into it saying this isn't a lecture, this isn't us telling you about 
democracy. This is us acknowledging we've got a problem. We're trying to figure it out. We know you all are having similar problems. Let's get together and talk about them and not just make this an external facing conversation about foreign policy, but let's make this an internal reflective conversation about, you know, how do we deal with our problems from within? I think the U.S. is because of the challenges that we face, actually a little bit ahead of the curve on that conversation than some other countries that maybe don't feel like they have quite the same struggles as we do, and and some of them probably don't to the same extent. So I think the first summit was a good signal that there was room for this conversation, there's demand for this conversation. In terms of concrete outcomes from that first summit, most of them, frankly, were financial commitments made by the U.S. around things uh, like democracy and governance funding, in, you know, through USAID and the State Department, other countries made some commitments. But I think, you know, the the real value of it was kind of that symbolic piece of it. I'm not sure, absent the invasion of Ukraine and everything that's happened since then, that we'd all still be talking about the summit all that much uh, 15 months later. Otherwise, so Marty, what what topics do you think should receive the most attention at this summit? The interesting thing about this summit process is that they've defined the issues around democracy fairly broadly. There are some traditional kind of core issues like free and fair elections and um, media freedom, independent journalism that that are going to get some attention, which is obviously important. But they've also, for example, introduced a theme around including youth in democratic processes. There's a theme around combating corruption. And then there's a big, big focus, which I think is is right and appropriate around the challenges of technology in democracy. So the opportunity that technology presents to democratize information and make you know information accessible and to make civic engagement easier for people, but also the obviously very real threats that technology has posed to democracy whether that's, you know, content online, misinformation or disinformation, or whether that's the use of, you know, spyware and surveillance technology to go after human rights defenders and journalists by, you know, authoritarian regimes. So I think it's really important and and good that they're laser focused on that issue, because that's really a hard issue, a set of issues to tackle. There's a lot the U.S. can do on its own that, frankly, it isn't doing domestically in terms of actually regulating that industry. But in the absence of that sort of congressional action and direct domestic uh, regulatory action, at least they're able to have that conversation with the private sector and with other governments around some principles and some agreements on the direction of travel for these issues and to, to get together and think about how they can collectively provide more support to the organizations and individuals that are under attack because of the abuse of that technology. Marty, the Biden administration has emphasized the importance of rebuilding alliances and partnerships with like-minded countries. How do you think the summit is going to contribute to this effort? Yeah, it's really interesting because one of the critiques that the administration got in putting the first summit together is they did it very unilaterally. They put a real emphasis on speed and they wanted to pull this off in their first year. And so they kind of plowed ahead and made a lot of decisions about the approach and who should be invited and what the format should be on their own. This time around, they've got, as you mentioned, four co-hosts, South Korea, the Netherlands, Zambia, and Costa Rica, in an attempt to to demonstrate that this is a global effort and that they're cooperating with like-minded countries. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. So each of those co-hosts are going to hold their own event on day two of the summit on the 30th, 
in their respective capitals, and the U.S. will do one here in Washington as well, on one of these themes that I mentioned. And that's fine. That's interesting. It's useful to have those conversations in the different regions. But really what I'm watching to see is what happens next. Do these countries actually make commitments and announcements? Are they sending signals that this is a topic and an issue that they want to show regional leadership on so that it isn't just the U.S. You know, pushing this process forward? Because agreement around sort of international principles on, on democracy is, is interesting and it can be value add, but the rubber meets the road in terms of real impact in, at the country level and at the regional level, right? And so it is much more interesting to me if Costa Rica or Zambia or South Korea steps up and says, you know, democracy and human rights are going to be a priority for us in our regions. And we're going to engage when we see democratic backsliding among our neighbors. And we're going to provide support for civil society activists. We're not just going to rely on the U.S. to do that. We're actually going to speak up and take action. And I think that would really be a signal that this is a, you know, a multilateral effort. The other aspect of this, you know, sort of alliances question that you asked about is the impact of the of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? The invasion isn't just threatening the Ukraine's democracy, it's threatening Ukraine's existence. And the interconnection between, you know, the need to have alliances and cooperation on, on democracy and the need to have an alliance on and an agreement on respect for the international legal order that we have built, <laughs> that among other things says you can't take the territory of another country by force, is really important. And there's a, a high degree of overlap there. Obviously, there are non-democratic countries that have condemned the Russian invasion and that, you know, have supported us and, and the U.S. is cooperating and, and working with a lot of those countries in the effort to, to stop the invasion. But we looked at the most recent U.N. vote, for example, condemning the Russian invasion, and more than half of the countries voting in that resolution were are invited to the summit. Or so for the purposes of argument, we could say that there are democracies. Only seven of the 39 countries that didn't vote yes, that either abstained or voted no, are invited countries. The countries that are democracies that are participating in the summit also disproportionately support us on this kind of international legal order question. So it's really important, not just for the sake of the democracy conversation, but on our broader effort to reinforce the, the international system that we've created in the context of the Russian invasion to have this group of countries um, come together. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about the Russian invasion in a minute and the latest ICC decision to issue a warrant for Vladimir Putin. But before I, I, I get to that, I want to ask you about challenges. What are the most significant challenges that this summit faces, particularly from authoritarian regimes like Putin's? You know, I um, I am a, a realist in what a summit like this can accomplish. We have to be honest that the the value of this summit is, or the I should say, the audience for this summit is not really foreign governments, right? You're not going to convince a authoritarian regime to change their ways because they want to be a member of this club of democracies and they want to come be invited to a summit. It's not a it's not an action forcing event, and it's not it you know. There's some value in bringing the marginal countries into the conversation, the fragile democracies, the partial democracies into this side of the equation. So I think there's some, some value to that. But I actually think we're not going to see a lot in terms of the global geopolitical impact of this summit. 
this is also not a traditional summit in the sense that there's no joint statement coming from all the participants where they all agree on policy. You know, you're not going to have those kind of G7, G20 moments. There's no side meetings to pull people aside because the head of state part is virtual. Without those traditional summit things, to me, the value add really of the summit process is the is the impact it has on the non-government stakeholders. So the civil society participants, the youth leaders, the you know academics, the students, the journalists, and the media, um, and the private sector, and and just everyday citizens who are watching this process and know that there is support, you know, they're the ones who need to kind of hear this message and get the support. And that to me is sort of a more useful way of thinking about the value out of the summit than thinking of it really as a summit itself. The fact that civil society activists are going to be on stage virtually, so to speak, with heads of state in the actual summit on that Wednesday is really significant. You don't see that at other summits where you've got a head of state speaking and then you've got a human rights activist speaking on the summit stage. And then all of these initiatives, all of these funding efforts that the U.S. is launching, they're weedy and they're technical and they're not headline grabbing. They're not super sexy. But if you do them right, they're really important and they really help, you know, reinforce some of the building blocks around democracy when you're talking about, you know, support for local journalism, when you're talking about making it harder for authoritarian regimes to get access to surveillance technology. These are things that, you know, can really have an impact if you do them right on the people that are doing the hard work on the ground of actually trying to build a democracy. Marty, let's talk about Vladimir Putin for a second. What has he been charged with by the ICC and why? And how will this decision affect ICC member states? Yeah, so Putin was charged by the ICC with two counts of war crimes among the thousands, frankly, of of war crimes that have been committed in Ukraine. The ICC started with some of the most shocking charges, which is the transfer of population from occupied areas of eastern Ukraine into Russia, and particularly the transfer of children, Ukrainian children, out of Ukraine and into Russia to be put into, in some cases, what they're calling re-education camps, in some cases adopted by Russian families. This is itself a war crime under international law. You know, warring parties might do this to kind of weaken resistance in the areas under conflict. I think there's an allegation that Russia is also doing this to literally eliminate the next generation of Ukrainians to sort of take these children and, and make them more Russian. And if it's done with that intent, it could be more than war crimes. It could actually be, you know, crimes against humanity or even an element of genocide. But he was charged with war crimes along with his sort of children's rights commissioner that works in his office. These are really significant charges. They came very quickly. They came in the midst of obviously a very active conflict. So the the court made the decision to put these charges out publicly because of their ongoing nature. They could have kept them private in the hopes that maybe they would capture one of these people unexpectedly while traveling and maybe arrest them. But they decided it was more important to put the charges out publicly to deter lower level Russian officials who are complicit in these crimes from cooperating. You know, now Russian bureaucrats who are involved, Russian military officials who are involved in this transfer are now on notice that what they're doing is actually a war crime and they could themselves be charged with a crime. So hopefully to deter this practice. But what's going to be interesting going forward is, you know, the ICC member states 
countries that are members of the ICC are now under an obligation if either of these individuals comes to their country to arrest them and turn them over to the ICC. And so it's going to be very interesting to see where Putin chooses to, to go or not go in the coming months and years. His world just got you know a lot smaller. He's obviously not spending a lot of time in Europe these days anyways. It's not likely that he's going to end up there, but there are a few countries in Central Asia and elsewhere that he has traveled to fairly frequently in the past, and those countries are going to have to make a tough decision going forward. Are there any other repercussions that he might face? The ICC itself, of course, doesn't have its own police force and isn't going to be able to take action against him unless and until he's arrested by a member state. So the real consequences for him are in terms of the other actions that individual countries are taking, particularly on sanctions and things like that, that are going after his pocketbook, his ability to travel even more broadly, and obviously the economics and, and military situation in Russia. So I think this is one piece of the of the puzzle in terms of pressure on Putin himself, but really on the people around Putin to try and convince them to change their behavior in this war. Marty, thank you so much for helping us understand this complex set of issues involving this summit. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 